Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We post just about everything online nowadays. Our successes, our failures, and even for some, what they had for dinner last night. But what happens when people blur the lines of privacy, exposing the world to their deepest, darkest problems, live and in high definition on social media for all to see? This time on Invisible Choir. forgive him, but I never will forget. And all area personnel know there's going to be two rounds discharged. Two right though. Everybody wants to be frame. I'm making frames. We have shots fired out here. Everybody hold their position. Hold your position. Report police, what's your emergency? When you send the police to 1301 madness, because they shoot Jonathan Watterson. Okay, is he shooting now? Yeah, he's shooting now, ma'am. Ten fifty one AM, April twelfth, twenty eighteen, Shreveport, Louisiana. Dispatch be advised, I heard multiple shots inside that house and I rolled up. Corporal Brittany Mackey of the Shreveport Police is first on scene for an emergency call of reported gunfire at thirteen oh one Natalie Street in the Cotto Heights South Highlands neighborhood. The initial call for service is made by Anita Williams. She's hysterical and keeps repeating that a man named Jonathan Robinson has forced his way into her daughter's home and is now shooting indiscriminately outside their front door. Page 170. Go ahead. 1301 Natalie. Get out of the way. Shots fired. 451 is code 2 to that officer on Natalie. I've got gunfire coming. All right, he's firing at me. Corporal Mackey takes cover after making her initial approach to the residence, parking just south of the red and white brick home at the end of a cul-de-sac. The man begins firing at her with a semi-automatic SKS rifle, so she takes cover behind a thick tree trunk in a neighbor's front yard, pinned down in the gunfire, awaiting critical backup. I'm trying to get to you. Gotta get me straight. Hold what you got, we're coming to you. 170 As more officers arrive, Mackey radios for them to stay back, as the only road leading to the house where the shooter is barricading himself is lined with parked cars and thick tree lines, making approach by vehicle nearly impossible. Do not come up this road, you're gonna be in his sight. I'm on foot. I'm on his block foot. I do not have eyes on him anymore. He's in back in the house. Alright, 10-4. No. 114 to dispatch. We have shots fired out here. Everybody hold their position. Hold your position. Eventually, 41 police units respond to the active shooting, each covering the other as they move from tree to tree and car to car. They systematically close in on the house and the man who occasionally peeks out the front door to shoot at them. But there's still one major problem. They aren't sure exactly which house the shooting is coming from because they're unable to get close enough to ascertain precisely where the man is positioned. Okay, 10 dispatch, I'll be around to the scene with the drone copy. 
dispatch, what's the street to the south of us? Maybe State Street. Simple, we need you to direct units to the south of us, please. Can anybody give us where the shots are coming from? They're coming from inside that residence, 1301 Natalie. As police settle in, information begins making the rounds. There's a young woman trapped inside the house with the gunman, 27-year-old Renita Nunu-Williams. Her mother, Anita, who made the initial 911 call for help, and her younger brother, Jamar, say, were both present in the home when Renita's ex-boyfriend, 36-year-old Jonathan Robinson, kicked in the door. Robinson was so intently focused on quickly entering the home that he left his car there running in the driveway. They quickly realized he was there to kill Renita. He made no bones about it. I don't remember the full details of the call. It was about a complainant calling in about a man inside the residence with a daughter shooting inside the residence. So I got code two. Well, I got a ride over there. Uh, pulled up to Natalie in St. Vincent. Not very familiar with District 10. So I stopped at St. Vincent and Natalie and I got out on foot. <clears throat> I was on the southern side of the street in like the first yard and I saw some people down the block. Um, there's a little cul-de-sac there. They were on the north side and they were pointing at a house, but I couldn't see which house they were pointing at. Um, so as I was advancing towards them, uh, eastbound, I heard what kind of sounded like firecrackers. Um, I couldn't tell where it was coming from. <clears throat> so I made it through the first yard that was on the, on the south side and I got to the second yard and, uh, uh, that's when I was in the, where we later found out where the suspect's house is. I was in the the house to the right, two houses down from him. I was in the front yard, um, and I immediately, when I was looking around, uh, it happened really fast. This guy, he looked like a black male, popped out the front door. All I saw was a muzzle flash, and I heard shots. Um, I saw one of them go down into the ground of the yard in front of me that was directly in front of me. So I hopped behind this tree that was to my left uh, trying to, he was still firing when I was behind that tree. So I took cover, <clears throat> but I realized that I was kind of in a bad spot. So I tried to get better coverage. And when the shooting stopped briefly, I made my way to a white house that the, the tree was the tree was in the front yard of this white house. I, I made it to the west side of the house and I heard more shots. Um, so I started my radio traffic. <clears throat> I couldn't tell whether the guy went back inside or whether he was out anywhere. So I was just going from the front and the back of the house trying to keep eyes on what I could. Uh, started my radio traffic trying to get a perimeter, telling everybody don't come down Natalie, don't come down Magazine. Just trying to give them a description where the house was. Um, it was about, I don't know, maybe three to four minutes, and then um, I saw Ortiz and Pettigrew and Walker. They were on a shield. They were advancing towards me. Dash cam video from another officer's parked squad car captured the dramatic rescue as three other Shreveport officers advanced inch by inch behind a single ballistic shield directly into the gunfire. I hollered at them that I was on the right. They came to where I was. Uh, Ortiz took my position on the house. Uh, Pettigrew was on the shield. 
So I got with Walker and myself, all three of us, we advanced to the house directly to the right of the suspect's house. Um, there's like a fence and there's a red truck. So as we came around the fence, um, he started, he came out and he started firing at us again. We got behind the truck. Um, uh, he's, he fired at the truck. I don't know how many rounds he fired. I heard a tire pop on the truck. Uh, we were pinned down for a good little minute, but we had the advantage point where we could see both doors on the front. So we held that until SRT got there. Uh, I don't know how long that was, a few minutes. Um, they all came, I guess they tried to get their game plan. Uh, I stayed on the shield with Pettigrew, so it was me and Pettigrew at the end of that truck, uh, just keeping eyes on the house. Time went by, more shots were fired. Uh, I don't know at what point uh, Intrigan got shot. While most of us would run in the opposite direction and hide, Shreveport police continued advancing on the home, including two officers who were making their way around the back of the property near the large white water tower directly behind the Williams residence. Up to this point, police hadn't fired a single shot at the suspect, though he had repeatedly fired multiple volleys at them as they approached, bullets skipping off the pavement as officers ran from tree to tree for cover. The chaos of the scene and the shared confusion among those arriving later led some to believe that the shooting was actually coming from the house next door to 1301, a mistake that would eventually lead to one officer narrowly escaping with his life. And we go back there, and we, as we're going down the street, we see three officers behind the house that we thought was the house. Like right behind it, there's a privacy fence. And then we, that was the house they were behind. So we see them looking at that house. So we go down a couple more houses, and go through a yard and get behind this tree and um, and post up there. And it was east of where we thought the suspect was. Corporal Robert Entrican volunteered to move around the neighbor's backyard and position himself behind the Williams home. After the captain on scene agreed, sending he and another officer around back for support, the two observed the SWAT special response team in position, surrounding what they believed to be the home that the shooter was inside. But it wasn't. There was still mass confusion on the scene as officers mistakenly surrounded the wrong home. And, uh, and you know, and we were told before we went over there, we were told that SWAT had a inner perimeter around the house. So, and I didn't see any SWAT where I was at, so I was pretty sure that was the right house that we were looking at. So, anyway, which house were you looking at? The the one that had the privacy fence around it. So when we thought the guy was in, okay, he wasn't. Okay, he was in the one next to that. Okay. Closer to us. Yeah. So anyway, so um, so we were looking at, we were looking there. I mean, we didn't see any SWAT guys, so we thought that's where they were. So um, so anyways, the two SWAT guys come come towards us, and they come right by us, and they said, "Which house?" They asked us, "Which house is it?" And I just pointed out that house with the, around inside the privacy fence. They literally jumped the fence of the house that the suspect was in and walked right up next to the back door. And they were right next to the windows. Right next to it. I mean, he could have shot him. I mean, and I mean, thank God he did. Cause I then I really would have felt like crap.
As the standoff dragged on for nearly 80 minutes, hostage negotiators on scene had attempted to make contact with Robinson multiple times by having his current girlfriend call him. But he explained that he didn't want to talk and that he had no plans of surrendering to police. But as they took up positions, some staging behind the wrong house inadvertently, he indicated to police that he was ready to surrender, that he was coming outside with his hands up. And as SRT readied themselves to detain the gunman, a call came over the radio. They were planning to disable Robinson's car so that he couldn't come outside and make one last attempt to escape. Let all area personnel know there's going to be two rounds discharged from a silent weapon to uh, off the vehicle running in the driveway. Police fired two high-caliber rounds into Robinson's engine block, but they were not silent and apparently spooked him into firing one last barrage at police, this time through a rear window at Officer Entrican, who didn't realize that he was left completely exposed his weapon trained at the wrong house entirely. They go through and I see them, they leave, go toward the front of the house. And then, I mean, just a few minutes later, I hear five or six gunshots, like, you know, quick, like, like, we, you know, like, pow, 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 you know? And so I'm looking to see, and Holland's pointing, he said, man, I saw dirt flying up from right there. And we're looking over there, we're looking over there, trying to see where it was coming from. And then all of a sudden, I hear two more shots and I'm, you know, I feel, I feel it hit my arm. Uh, we got shots fired again. Okay, from inside, the residents are out here. I think that was outside. I've been hit. Officer hit. Units, how you hit? In the wrist. I got hit in the wrist. And I, you know, my arms flew over, and I go down on the ground, and I said, Holland, I'm hit. Get behind cover. And um, so then I started looking to see if I could find him. And uh, I was having trouble getting my gun out. And so I got Holland to help me get my gun out. And I got my gun, put it in my left hand. I'm still looking, trying to see. I don't see him. Can't find him. And um, so then I was going to try to crawl out to get to the medic because I knew I needed to get. Because they told me the medic had pulled up on that Camille Street and was waiting for me. So I was going to try to crawl out. Well, um, then I told Holland and Heiser was in like behind us. I told him I said, "Y'all cover me. I'm going to try to come out." Well, I started to crawl and. Um, I got shot on the right side of the tree. This tree's freaking huge. It's probably big around this table. It's huge. So I got shot on the right side of the tree, and on the left side of the tree where I'm looking, I'm crawling, I look back, and I can see an opening from the house, like, where I was fixing to go through, and he'd had a clear shot. So I was like, I ain't going through there. You know, that, he'd have a clear shot at me, so I'm not going to try that. So I crawled back to the tree, and then... I, that's when I got on the radio and said, hey, I'm good. Y'all get him. Don't worry about me. I'm good. And um, and then uh, Bassett come running up and said, look, we're going to run out there to the street. And he grabbed me and we took off running. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible, how are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
at the door. He's on the ground. 114 to dispatch. Suspect is out of the house. We are clearing the residence. Clearing the residence. The Shreveport Police and Special Response Team exhibited tremendous courage and valor that sunny April morning, advancing directly into the rapid semi-automatic gunfire of Jonathan Robinson. Some continuing forward even though they weren't sure which house he was actually in. At times, police thought he was outside hiding in the trees. At other times, they thought for sure he was laying underneath a parked truck or firing from the small crawl space directly underneath the Williams' home. But after 80 minutes of chaos, he surrendered, casually walking out the front door, his hands raised high in the air before he dropped to his belly and was detained. He simply ran out of bullets. Police secured the perimeter and cleared the house, eventually reporting that there was a body inside. 27-year-old Renita Williams was tragically murdered, shot three times, once in the knee and twice to the midsection. The beloved mother of three hadn't gone quietly in the home, however, as police would later discover she actually live-streamed her final moments alive on Facebook from inside of the house on her brother Jamarse's cell phone. It seemed those watching online had a front-seat viewing of the tragic events that set the city of Shreveport into an 80-minute frenzy of sheer terror. And within a matter of only three hours, Shreveport police would know precisely why Jonathan Robinson burst into the Williams' home guns blazing, intent on killing his ex-girlfriend. One thing about my baby, she's a living legacy. She left me broken, torn, and hard. My heart is ripped apart. And I can tell anybody out here, if you got somebody and you mad at them, family member and all, you grab them. And you love them. Because you don't know when it's going to be your last time seeing that person. Renita Williams, or Nunu, has most called her was laid to rest on April 21, 2018. Her funeral ceremony live-streamed on Facebook by the Precious Moments Mortuary in the Praised Temple of Shreveport. Hundreds gathered in the large auditorium-like space. There were heartfelt live singing performances as three men in white pants and bright golden jackets slowly carried a golden crown through the crowd, slow marching in a kind of disciplined dance, their feet smoothly hovering above the ground as they took each step in unison together was her final crowning ceremony. One man approached her casket, the crown still on a plush golden pillow, and removed it, gently placing it upon her head. Her family sat in the front rows, all wearing white and pink, grief-stricken, holding one another as they closed her casket. It was covered in pink and white flowers, draped in large swaths of pink lace, and had a picture of her with her three children in the front. Pink was her favorite color and it filled that room like a reverberating sea of warmth and kindness as they began to pray and sing aloud in worship. It was as if Nunu's life had come full circle, as many in the room had tragically watched a different type of live stream just nine days before, when Renita Williams, with a gun pointed firmly in her direction, grabbed her brother's phone at Jonathan Robinson's demand and began streaming from inside her home at 1301 Natalie Street. 
Hey, y'all. This Nuno. I apologize for jobs for going live on Rika. I ain't had no business doing all it. My page been blocked. So that's why I'm going live. Yes, I know I was wrong. I ain't have no business going out like that, but... See right there. See right there. Everybody wants to be famous. I'm going to make you famous. Yes. What? I am sorry, y'all. This new new, I'm blocked off my page. So I had to go out live on Mortifying. I ain't had no intentions to go on live like that. I apologize to everybody. In the short clip, Robinson could be heard yelling aloud in the background. Apologize now. Everybody want to be famous? I'm going to make y'all famous. As he forces Renita's brother, Jamarse, to start a live stream on his Facebook account, eventually turning the phone to selfie mode and handing it over to Renita. Jonathan sets him free just moments later. Yes. continues apologizing to viewers now joining in on her live stream, repeating that she, quote, didn't mean to go off on Rika like that the other day. I'm sorry. She was referencing an alleged argument that her and Jonathan got into a few days before that ultimately led to the both of them going live on Facebook to continue arguing live for all to see on their public feeds. Jonathan claiming that Nunu made references to his new girlfriend Sharika Taylor's mental health, among other things. Jonathan has Sharika on speakerphone during the live feed, and she could be heard pleading aloud for him to stop and not to hurt anyone. She, no, it was just, I'm, I apologize because I couldn't go, go live on my phone. My, pay, my, my phone, my page is blocked. If you want to be famous, I'm going to make a motherfucker famous. No. If you want to be famous, I'm going to make you famous. No. No. Everybody want to be famous, just be famous today. Okay. Huh? I do. Yes. He's telling you like you don't need this level. No. This don't. Jonathan can be heard loading a magazine into his semi-automatic SKS rifle before firing six rounds off out the front door towards Corporal Mackey, who is just now arriving on scene after Anita Williams first called 911. It's at this moment that Jonathan Robinson has set into motion a series of events that will forever scar the Williams family and the Shreveport police community. When he turns the gun towards Renita, firing three shots at her, mortally wounding her, live on Facebook. Stop, Jonathan! Stop, Jonathan! Now, bitch, game over! Game over! Bitch. 
Renita Nunu Williams laid on her living room floor bleeding to death for nearly an hour and a half while Jonathan randomly shot at police arriving on scene. She was pronounced dead en route to the University Health Hospital. But what could possibly drive a man to force his way into someone's home and brutally execute them, setting the entire scene up so the murder would take place on Facebook Live while friends and family looked on in horror? It turns out, Jonathan himself was willing to talk and was interviewed by police just three hours after the shooting occurred. Okay, you are, you are hereby under arrest for your part in the offense of second-degree murder. I hereby notify you have the right to remain silent. You're not required to make any statement unless you want to do so voluntarily. Anything you say shall be used against you in a court of law. You also have the right to consult with your attorney and have him present with you. If you can't afford an attorney, he won't be appointed to represent you. While you're not required to make any statement, you may waive those rights she's explained to you, and you're given the privilege of saying anything you want to about this case. Now, with this understanding of waiving those rights she explained to you, do you wish to make a statement to how this happened? You do? Yes. Okay. I think I need to be charged with first degree. Why? Because I planned that I knew what I was going to do. Jonathan Robinson was initially charged with second degree murder in the death of Renita Williams. And surprisingly, in the opening comments of his statement once Mirandized, he explained to police that he believed he should actually have been charged with first degree murder because his actions that morning were carefully planned. He went there fully intending to kill his ex-girlfriend. We'll just start from the beginning. It's like, you know, when you just say your wife, you know your wife not strong. And you know people mess with your wife because they know she's not mentally stable. That she know. There ain't no excuse for what I did, but I done hurt her so much. And, and, and I just got tired of people hurting her. She going to mental stages and it's like, and everybody laughing at her. And I got tired of it. I told them nobody won't laugh at you no more. I'm tired of hurting her. That ain't no excuse for what I did. I hate it, but man, I'm supposed to protect her. Supposed to protect us, my job, protect her. Okay, me and the girl, we have dealings. But it's like a person know if you know what push a button, buttons and make them go over the edge and make them be suicidal and stuff, and you still do it, it's like you have no regard for her life. You know she'll go, you know she'll take all these drugs, you know she'll take all these pills and kill herself. And you want to go on social media and bash her, make her look bad, and just... I told her I'd never let nobody hurt her like that no more. I told her. No more. Robinson claimed that Williams routinely went on social media, putting his new girlfriend on blast, and commenting about her mental state. The two had formally broken up over two years ago, but they occasionally reconnected, seeing each other anytime Robinson was passing through the area. It seemed the perfect fuel to keep their explosive relationship afire. Well, what happened though? I shot him. I shot him. 
Okay, so you get to the house. What happens? I asked her why you steady messing with her. And I told her to go live and tell her. I told her to apologize to her. Apologize to who? My girl. Okay. I told her to apologize to her. You always want to cry out of the audience. You always want to famous now. Famous. Tell everybody you sorry. Stop with them. And what'd she say? She started apologizing. The police came. I don't know. I think I don't know if they were trying to sneak up on me or what. I just seen them by a truck. A red truck. And we started shooting. And it's like... It. Robinson's claim that, quote, we started shooting was categorically false. Apart from the two rounds they used to disable his car in Renita's driveway, the police never fired a single shot during the 80-minute standoff. Every other shot fired that day came from Robinson's gun with the intention to kill. What happened after that? After you shot the police, what happened after that? I think I shot him. I shot him. Where'd you shoot him at? I know in the leg and I don't know well. I never seen no... I never really seen why I shot her. I just know I shot her something because I seen blood. Did she say anything after that? <sighs> All right, what happened after that? I just thought I both these. From where? Wait, tell me where you were shooting at the police at. Where were they at? Everywhere. I was shooting everywhere. What were you using? My SK. How'd you get to the house? In my car. Who was with you? You were by yourself? Alright, so when you get there in your car, where do you go? I kick a door in. Which door? Not the one I came out of, but the other one. In the front of the house? The left one or the right one? The right one. Okay. The Williams home had a unique front entryway. What was previously the garage had been converted to another bedroom. So where the garage door once was, there was another front door. It was a confusing layout for responding police and looked more like a duplex than a single-family home. When first arriving, Robinson kicked open the door, breaking through the secure deadbolt lock in the process. All right, so what happens when you go in the house? Who's in there? Her mama, her, and I didn't know her brother was in there until she said, Marcy in the closet. When I told Marcy come out, Did you shoot into the closet? No. I wasn't. No, it's just like, it wasn't about, it just was about 
a person hurting a person that I love dearly that I'm supposed to protect. Alright, so so when you go in the house though, what do you see and where do you go and what happens? I go, I go in her room. Which one is that? That's the bedroom with the back door to it. Okay. I go in that room and I, I'm still excellent like why is you steady doing it? Why is she like? So her mama come in there. I don't know what she said, but when she said something, I shot the gun. Cause she didn't see me come in there with the gun or nothing. I didn't even know she was in there. Mm -hmm. It's like when she came in, when she, when I heard her say something, I just shot the gun. At her? No, I didn't never seen him. I just heard him. Her mama. Yeah. Where did you point the gun when you shot it? It was like, you know, I just had it pointed at a wall or something. Okay. In the bedroom? Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I never seen it. I just heard him. I just heard him say, I'm going to call the police or something. I just shot the gun. I didn't know where she went or nothing. Robinson repeatedly breaks down, sobbing loudly as he reflects on his actions from just hours ago. What started as a series of online arguments quickly evolved, in his mind, to a problem that needed terminal resolution. And that resolution was to kill Renita Williams so that he and his new partner could be happy together. Let me ask you this, just plain and simple. Why did you shoot her? Because she wasn't going to let me be great with Rico. She wasn't going to let me. When you walked into the house, what did you think was going to happen? I was going to kill her. But what, what did you think was going to happen to you after that? Well, they all them kill. You didn't care? At what point did you plan or decide that this is how you were going to handle it? <sighs> this morning? Was it Sunday? This morning when I woke up and it was steady calling my phone, texting my phone. She was? And I told her, this, I just said, stop. It's like the only way... So we could gonna be be great is if she was out the way. That's how I seen it. I ain't seen no other way. Instead of simply turning off his phone or hitting the block button on Facebook when the messages started coming in that Thursday morning, Jonathan instead got out of bed at his mother's house in the early morning hours and went gambling at the El Dorado Resort and Casino to clear his head. And then he drove to a local pawn shop and purchased two 20-round boxes of 7.62 by 39 ammunition and then he drove to his aunt's trailer and crawled underneath, retrieving the SKS that he'd illegally purchased off the streets some three years before. He planned to initiate a shootout with police and fully expected to die in the process, but during the entire standoff, he was taking phone calls from concerned family members, all pleading for him to surrender. But it wasn't until he spoke at length with Sharika that he decided to finally give up. He claimed that he was there defending her honor, but she didn't ask him to go there and she damn sure didn't encourage him to commit murder. But why then? Why did Jonathan Robinson decide that he needed to arm himself and go over to Renita's house that morning? It turns out he was going there for his own reasons, to silence her, because there was more to their story than he had previously let on, the details of which he wasn't willing to risk coming out publicly on Facebook. 
you know, a person know a person that's just like if I know your weaknesses. Something that'll send you over the edge, I use it. That's what she did. <clears throat> Why do you think that um Renita did that? Because me and her had sex Friday. And she have always wanted more with me, but it has never been more than just Oh, where did this happen on Friday? At her house. I thought you were in Houston. No, I was in... No, I left Houston. I came to Shreveport Friday. Alright. I came to Shreveport Friday then. Because we had sex Friday and Saturday. Because I went to a party downtown at the Styles Bar Saturday. Was she down there? Yeah. Where is that at? Styles. Styles, okay. Well, job to get in an argument or anything? Did she tell your girlfriend that y'all had sex? Pretty much through social media, being being messy. Okay. Is that the gist of it? Is y'all had sex? Your girlfriend heard about it, and now she was pissed off, and now you were mad at her for putting that out there. Wasn't mad. If you can hack into a Facebook account, you will see where I went live and Nuno went live. I just hate it when, when she went lit up off my girl. Jonathan Robinson's entire story that he was motivated to kill Renita out of love for his current girlfriend was entirely fabricated. He and Sharika were both living in Houston at the time of Renita's murder, a nearly four-hour drive from Shreveport. But Jonathan claimed that Renita's Facebook harassment started previously and was the reason he decided to return to Shreveport at all. He wanted to confront her, but he didn't. He met her out downtown at a bar, and the two had sex multiple times that weekend. He had been in her house and in her bedroom just days before her murder. Jonathan Robinson didn't want his new girlfriend to find out. He didn't see himself at all as the source of the problem, and he positioned himself time and time again as the knight in shining armor, willing to do anything to defend his apparently overly sensitive girlfriend, even if it meant killing in her honor. But Jonathan Robinson crawled under that trailer. He retrieved the hidden gun purchased those bullets with his own money, and brutally murdered Renita Williams, leaving her three young children behind motherless. And he did so because he couldn't stand having his own dirty laundry aired live on Facebook for all to see. But Jonathan was no stranger to crime. He had served nearly 10 years combined in prison for various violent felony crimes in the past, most involving drugs and robbery, but others for violence and abuse against women. In 2015, he rammed his then-girlfriend's car off the road and then severely battered her until police arrived. When they showed up, he used her body as a human shield, feigning to officers that he was armed. He was eventually tased and apprehended a short time later. Robinson was only sentenced to a year of probation for that domestic assault because the victim never pressed charges. And in 2017, in an eerily similar incident, he grabbed Renita Williams by the throat and choked her while in the car. He was never charged for the assault because she later refused to press charges as well. 
Had the domestic abuse laws been different in Louisiana, Robinson would have likely been in prison at the time of Renita's tragic murder. That's another missed opportunity in a fractured criminal justice system, one that provides reprieve to violent offenders time and time again. But for his actions on April 12, 2018, Jonathan Robinson was ultimately charged with second-degree murder for killing Renita. The DA didn't pursue a first-degree charge at the request of her mother because she didn't want him to face the death penalty and instead wanted him to live out the rest of his days behind bars. She was eventually granted that wish. Jonathan Robinson was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 100 years for seven counts of attempted murder for shooting at police during the standoff. On the day of his sentencing, Jonathan Robinson openly wept and asked the judge permission to apologize to Anita Williams for killing her daughter. The judge allowed it, and so he did. He also apologized for shooting at police. But perhaps in the ultimate showing of kindness and grace, Anita Williams publicly forgave Jonathan Robinson that day in the courtroom for all to see. Because I knew what I wanted in my heart and what I believed in. I didn't believe in killing nobody. I never believed in killing nobody. Not just him, nobody. Not even an enemy. So why, why? No, I'm glad justice has been served. Everything is gone. Everything is okay. So I feel a lot better now. Now I can rest. Now me and my family can go on with our life, you know. It's over with. It's no more. So it's nothing else to talk. Decision has been made between us and everybody else. So we feel a lot better. It hurts me. It hurts me so bad. By killing Jonathan, it's not going to bring Renita back. None whatsoever. So decision has been made, and that's what it is. We, I, we have been talking about it about months. We have been talking about months. He had asked me my decision, and he gave me his decision. So at the end of the day, the decision that was made was my decision. So no one else could look at the DA, no one else, no other different. I made that decision. So that is what it is. Did Robinson reach out to you anyway? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I never let no one know. It was privacy. Every time he reached out to me, I never let no one know. This wasn't the first time he apologized to me. It's about the third time with letters and writing. I just never let no one know what was going on with me. From this time on, it was just private. Whatever went on, it was private between me and my family. Yes, he did reach out, and I, I, I forgive him. I forgive him, but I never will forget. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline and get help. The number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.